Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Lynn Williford and Michael Lerner as they discuss Small is Beautiful, building volunteer circles of mutual support on South Whidbey Island. Lynn Williford, welcome to the New School. Well, thank you, Michael. You are the co-owner of the Clyde Theater in downtown Langley on South Whidbey Island. You and your husband, Blake, have co-owned it for how long? Well, Blake bought it in February of 1972, and I took Blake in 1976, so he's had it longer than I have. Right. And uh, so on many an evening as one strolls through downtown Langley, one can find you in the ticket booth. I have been, I calculated, I have been in that ticket booth for 40 years now. Right. Not every night anymore, but I have been in. And you should not let people think that there is actually a downtown Langley. We have two streets. Right. The population of Langley is about 2,000 within the town, I believe. A thousand. A thousand within the town. But a lot of other people identify with Langley. Right. And how much does popcorn cost at the... Uh... <laughs> popcorn costs $1, $2, or $3. Right. So we see a lot of stunned faces during the tourist season. Right. So as you know, my wife, Cheryl, and I uh, bought a little house on 2nd Street, just uh, a five-minute walk from the theater. And so that was about three years ago. And we've been getting to know... Uh, the town of Langley and the community of South Whidbey. And as I got to know the community, more and more people said to me, you know, you, wish, you should really talk to Lynn Williford. Uh, because um, among many other things, you're a writer, you're an editor, um, but you're locally known for having um, started quite a number of... Um, Community nonprofits, um, Hearts and Hammers, a home repair program, the Back to School project, which helps families pay for books and things, Friends of Friends, which provides medical support, um, uh, the Seriously Fun Productions, which presents the annual Wow Stories Gathering. I think Wow is Women of Whidbey. Yes, but I'm I'm just on the the founding board. I didn't, that was Diana Lindsay's idea. Okay. okay. But the others I mentioned were more your idea, is that correct? Yes, I, right. I started the other ones. And right. uh, with with friends and my husband started Whidbey Island Local Lending as right. well. Whidbey Island Local Lending, which is again another. And uh, right now you are exploring um, uh, with others, uh, creating uh, a new project called South Whidbey at Home. That's the name I'm calling it because we have to call it something right. until we come up with a name for it. But yeah, something that will help people stay in their homes here in this rural community. Right. So I want to talk more about all of those in a minute, but um, you've developed a, a fairly disciplined idea of um, how to start effective nonprofits. Could you talk about what your rules of thumb are for starting effective nonprofits? Gosh, if I'd known, I would have brought my 13 rules for starting a community, community I have, project. I have your 13 rules, but let's just talk about it. What, if you were talking to me about, 
I was thinking of starting a, a nonprofit on Whitby, and you and you just said, "What what are what are the guidelines that come quickly to your mind for the way you work?" Well, I always start with a simple idea that's easily communicated to people. Um, mm. There's that's the reason I think that my husband calls me the idiot savant of social entrepreneurism. <laughs> Um, because it's always a very simple idea, the one that people grasp. They usually know someone who's had this problem, so it's um, they have a little empathy for it. Um, I try and come up with a logo that that is strong enough to send the message about what it's about, too. Um, then I look for allies. I do a lot of research myself first, um, and I would suggest you do the same. But then you need to look for your natural allies. When I started um, Hearts and Hammers, I was then a member of the Methodist Church, and I knew that I was going to need a cadre of volunteers to make it work the first year. And I knew a lot of carpenters, because my husband and I were both owner-builders, but the church had a cadre of volunteers. So I started it, got their permission to start it as a pilot project the first year within the church, and though we segued off and became our own entity after that. Um, in Working now on the aging in place idea, we're already talking to the people who run senior services. We're talking with people who have set up a, a, a model we think we can bring here and customize. We're looking at the people who will spread the word about it. So we start talking about it so other people start talking about it. Um, and, and then I look for people I want to work with. Um, the boards, when a board is put together, I like to see some people with different backgrounds. I like to see some slow thinkers and some fast thinkers. I like to see, uh, I like to see someone with a really nice smile mm -hmm. because it makes me feel good to be in the meeting with them. Um, and once the organization has gotten rolling, I always want to see someone who's received benefit from the organization so that we have uh, both sides of the equation represented, both the volunteers and the uh, people who have received the help. Because ideally, people who receive help when they're able then give help later. I think of the whole thing as a circle. And you have a pretty strong commitment to rotating off the board yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If... I try and keep a low pro profile in the early ones that I started. I tried to keep a low profile because if it becomes your thing, it can fall apart. Um, if you get interested in something else or, or whatever, but if it becomes a community thing, then everybody has a vested interest in keeping it going. Mm -hmm. So usually I might hold the reins for the first three years. I might stay on the board for the first five to eight years, but then I rotate off and just asked to have the minutes sent to me. Right. Now, Hearts and Hammers, um, you, you started a couple of things, but you were involved with Citizens for Sustainable Development and... Um, sensible global, growth, sensible, yeah, sensible development. Sensible development mm -hmm. and global volunteers. And, uh, but your first 1993 uh, kind of local project was Hearts and Hammers, right? Well... Back in the 70s, I had Southwood Be Free University that I started oh, okay. for a couple of years. Um, and then, yes, Citizens for Sensible Development, I was one of the founders of that, and that lasted for about eight years. Okay. Um, and then Hearts and Hammers was the first thing I developed on really on my own that was successful. Right. So it started 
really small, just as a day that all your friends got together and all the and went and repaired some houses, right? Well, my goal the first year was to have 50 people work on four houses and raise $5,000. And uh, with the help of everyone who was involved, we raised $10,000. We worked on eight houses and we had 100 volunteers. And how big did it come to be? Uh, last year, for the past several years, it's been over 400 volunteers working at over, usually over 40 sites. Some of them are just grouped together. House Cap will have a couple of honeydew list houses to work on because there's a whole social component of Hearts and Hammers. We're not just fixing houses. We're helping people feel connected to the community. We're helping older women and older men stay in their homes. Um, so if you're over 70, we'll take your honeydew list and do that on our work day too. And what... What was the, how much money did you raise in recent years for this work? Well, I don't know exactly because I'm, I'm not on the board. I don't remember. I just get the minutes. Um, uh-huh. But I suspect, I suspect they raised 60,000, 70,000. 60,000, 70, and you said 400? Volunteers. Volunteers. And about 40 houses. Some of the volunteers are on the wood shopping crew right. that delivers firewood, and some are in the kitchens, and some are in the waste management. Right. Didn't you calculate that that represented something like 1% of the population of South Whidbey? Oh, something like that? 400 divided by 15,000, yeah. I don't know. Okay. But, the <laughs> but we, is, serve, we serve about, we have right. served about 15% of the population of South Whidbey. So that's extraordinarily successful, let's just say. I think so. That's, that's an amazing thing. So the, the second... Uh, it's also uh, a great way to meet 400 people in one day. Right. The second project... Um, was the back-to-school project. No, actually, the second one was Friends oh, of Friends. Friends of Friends, okay. Medical Support Fund. Yeah, so that started with a friend of yours with cancer, not a good friend, but someone you knew with cancer who needed help. It started with a f- woman I knew, um, mm-hmm. and uh, somehow we ended up sitting together in the, sun, in the sun one day and started talking, and then she asked me to be in her care circle. And... Um, uh, Mully, uh, Malali, and uh, Shanti and I became her primary care setter-uppers. And really, the community su- supported Judy for the three years she was ill. And that includes the school teachers. The school teachers all pledged all their sick days to a fund they set up, a wellness fund for Judy. Mm-hmm. And um, that gave me the first idea. And... Um, I'd been talking to Wayne Muller about what he was doing in New Mexico where he had people send him money and he got them in, got the money. Bread for the journey. Yeah, yeah, bread for the journey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I kept thinking, I could do bread for the journey here, but any good any good nonprofit idea gets, gets funded, so I don't really need to do it that way. But I could take that model and use it for helping people with medical expenses. Mm-hmm. So that's the germination of Friends of Friends Medical Support Fund. I sent a letter out to 100 people I knew and said, would you send me 100 bucks a year? I, you can't deduct it from your income taxes. You'll have to trust that I'll use it well. Um, because I had been kind of made St. Linny for doing hearts and hammers, I talked a friend into letting me use her name on, <laughs> on the request, too. Um, and off we went. And that first year, we got $7,500 and distributed it. And people use that for things like ferry tickets to the mainland to for medical treatment or medical it will pay for hospital bills doctor bills uh pharmaceuticals 
ferry treat mm-hmm. ferry rides to treatment. All of it goes directly to the provider. Right. There are accounts at the each of the um, drugstores and at the with the ferries, um, and there is a limit to how much a person can be helped in any one year. Um, that that varies depending on how the mm-hmm. money is. Um, and really, let's see, last year and. Lately, with thanks to Obamacare mm-hmm. and our pushing people to actually sign up for it, mm-hmm. um, the numbers have gone down. Mm-hmm. It used to be over 100 people helped a year, and no, over 200 people helped a year, and last year it was like 150 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we have reliably raised $80,000 a year. Mm. Amazing. Here. Mm. And we calculated once that we'd help 15% of the people on the island there too. Mm-hmm. And like with hearts and hammers, what we find is that people who have been helped often become donors or help at fundraisers or whatever. And often people who have been helping, when they get in a bind, they become the recipients of the help. So in, in, one of you, in a WOW talk, or the Women of Whitby talk that you did on this, you talked about understanding these processes as much more powerful when they're circular as opposed to one way. Yeah, and I know it doesn't work for all forms of, of mm-hmm. charitable giving, but the things I start are, are, um, are almost always purely volunteer efforts. Mm-hmm. I don't start anything that I expect to have an executive director, mm-hmm. a paid executive director mm-hmm. on. Um, uh, there is a service coordinator who gets paid now mm-hmm. for friends of friends, but I did it for 10 years without pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it got started fine. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's really important that, for instance, no organization I started refers to people it helps as clients. Mm-hmm. I hate that term. Mm-hmm. I hate that term. That is so one way. Mm-hmm. And so we, we come up with, you know, people we help or neighbors, our na- we're helping our neighbors or whatever other way we can, homeowners, we refer to homeowners at Hearts and Hammers. Um, it's, it's all, the idea is that you help us now, we help you later or vice versa. Mm-hmm. When I first was answering calls for both Hearts and Hammers and Friends of Friends, I, I had an... Uh, an untold number of people burst into tears because I just asked for their name and where they lived and and what their story was. And then I'd say, well, sure, send us the bill and we'll make sure it gets paid. And then they'd burst into tears. And finally, I figured out how to stop the tears, which is that they'd start to get a little verklempt. And I'd say, so so where do you volunteer? Because everybody here volunteers at something. And they would tell me, and I would say, well, then you're prepaid. And see, that just takes it all, all the all burden of being a recipient away. Because most people you talk to think of themselves as givers. Mm. And most of us are givers when we can be. So it's really hard for a giver to ask for help. So mm. if you just say, no, you're prepaid, then it, it levels the playing field a little Beautiful. bit. So then the, the third project was the back to school project. Tell us a little about that. Well, that came out of... That came out of the uh, Friends of Friends. <laughs> Those three came bing, bing, bing within like four years. But I was discovering during the summers that uh, people were needing more help with medications and were skimping on their medications so that they would have enough money to pay for kids' back-to-school supplies. Kids get a long list of supplies they need every year, plus they've outgrown their last year's school clothes, and, and people were skimping on their medical care. 
So there was some disparate churches and stuff trying to do some things, but there was no real program to help kids with that and parents with that. So, and I didn't really need another program to run because I was still running both the other ones. So I called Readiness to Learn Foundation, which works with struggling families uh, through the school district, and said, look, if I do all the publicity for the first three years and I raise all the money for the first three years, would you guys run a program where people can get the school supplies they need and you know maybe some backpacks or whatever? And they said sure and ran with it. It's now a program of the Family Resource Center um, under the Readiness to Learn Foundation. They've done a wonderful job with it. Um, I did my bit, um, talked one of my snack bar ladies into taking over uh, my end of it, and, uh, and it's been going for years. And people can come and show up and just get all the supplies they need for their kids to go back to school. So those three are kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but the kind of core projects that you personally have done so far? Were there others where you were also the sort of founder visionary in the same sense in addition to those three? Not until Will. Right. Um, So let's talk about Will. But I did have a period where I was bored and put an ad on Drew's list, which is our local version of Craigslist, um, saying, I'm bored. I'd like to brainstorm if Mm. your nonprofit or small business Mm. would like to talk to me, give me a call. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that, I think I consulted with 16 nonprofits and I don't remember how many small businesses because it's fun for me to do that. Well, speaking of that, and before we get to Will, I heard there was something like 72 nonprofits on the South Whidbey. Did you tell me that, or did somebody else? I, I looked it up with the state, but that doesn't count things that are nationally nonprofit that have branches here. Right. So I'm thinking we have, every one of us has one nonprofit somewhere. <laughs> so, so, and were you the person who told me that, that, that you or they thought that there were more nonprofits per capita on South Whidbey than anywhere <laughs> in the country? Maybe, yes. Yeah. yeah. The reason I'm kind of working with this is because, um, and we'll get this this in a minute, the the culture of South Whidbey, which you've written about beautifully in an unpublished book of which you let me see three chapters, and we'll come back to that, I find to be a very extraordinary culture. I'd like to talk about that in a minute, but before we get there, let's talk about Will, the Whidbey Local Lending Project. Tell us about that. Whidbey Island Local Lending. Well, I uh, was, that came about because of connections I made through the Whidbey Institute. Um, And I believe you've talked to the founder, Fritz Fritz Hall, Hall, in your previous podcast. And through connections I made at the winter gathering there, in which you talked to that that one's founder, Rick Ingrassi. Rick Ingrassi, right. Um, uh, The people, the Whidbey Institute was putting on a thriving community series of conferences, annual conferences. Um, looking at uh, growing a support, strong social support system in your community. And the first year, we focused just on South Whidbey things, and we used the lens of food. So we looked at um, the various ways we helped people have a nutritional safety. Um, and the next year was 
local economy. And I heard about a Port Townsend organization called uh, Lion, Local Investors Opportunity Network, that was doing loca vesting. Well, I'd read about loca vesting five years before in an article in the New York Times about great ideas for this year and kept thinking, what does that mean and how do you do it? Well, Lion had done it, uh, set up a system w- which is essentially an email list that circulates requests for uh, loans and people who are inter- members of Lion who are interested in maybe participating in that loan would then directly contact the, the potential borrower and, and they'd see if it works for them and they'd work out the terms themselves. And it was, so it's strictly an email list that sends the information around. And I thought, we could do that here. And I mentioned it at the next winter, winter gathering a couple of weeks later and to Vicki Robin, who actually you've also talked to in a mm-hmm. podcast. And she said, oh, I was thinking about that once and actually I bought their, their manual, which was nice because I wasn't willing to pay $150 for it. Um, and I'll give it to you if you'll do something with it. And I said, sure, and I um, talked to my husband and our friends, Steve and Deb, and he said, let's start this, and we did. And it started uh, May 2012 and has made over $600,000 worth of loans so far in this small community. So that, in addition to consulting with 60 Nonprofits. Sixteen. Sixteen. 16. Thank you. <laughs> My hearing isn't what it was. Uh, Sixteen nonprofits and small businesses. Uh, that's a total of four nonprofits where you really have engaged locally, and it has worked out yeah. to be a success. Yeah. So, in addition to that, then the um, at home. Uh, uh, on South Whidbey would be the fifth if that moves forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and you've talked a little about your your theory of uh, how you do this: all volunteer, um, find allies, uh, keep a low profile as the personally, founder, personally, yeah. um, keep it simple, keep it simple. Find a logo that communicates your purpose. Oh, and I don't look for grants outside the community. Never be dependent on grants. And never be dependent on grants. Okay. So I find that pretty remarkable. I, you're, you're a very, um, uh, for want of a better word, humble person and don't like... I once told you I thought it was remarkable and you said, uh, it's not remarkable at all. There are millions of people like me. And I wrote you back saying, yeah, there are millions of people like you. But nonetheless, <laughs> I find that millions of people do this remarkable. You know, so, and um, because I'm in a somewhat similar... I was going to say, you said there are millions of people like us. <laughs> yes, but your, your model is actually much more pure than mine. I've done a lot of work with grant-supported stuff and so on. So You've done bigger things. I really just yeah. take... take but s- I, don't, I don't really buy that they're... I mean, yes, they're bigger, but nonetheless... And also you told me that a number of your projects, others have picked up the model and used them elsewhere. What were those examples? There's other hearts and hammers. There are other hearts and hammers. And oddly enough, years, years later, when hearts and hammers was talking about going online, I discovered that someone else had started an organization called Hearts and Hammers uh-huh. in Texas two uh-huh. years before I had started mine. Oh, really? I had no idea. Uh-huh. And then that guy was a returned Peace Corps. He moved to Minnesota and started one there. Wonderful. Well, it wasn't wonderful because George Bush was the finance head of the one in Texas. <laughs> but we we have between um, a man from Oklahoma came 
and brought it back to his community of Miami, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And then the Joplin, Missouri picked it up from him, and then other people picked it up from articles I'd done in Fine Home Building and in New Age Journal. So right. it spread. And the Friends of Friends is now in the two other island communities, uh, Coopville and Oak Harbor, and uh, we're talking with people starting it on the Olympic Peninsula in Port Townsend. Wonderful. So, and, and most towns have a back-to-school project, so I don't see anybody copying that. So let's talk a little about your observations about the culture of South Whidbey and this wonderful unfinished book uh, of which I read three chapters. Uh, one, if I remember correctly, is on Friends, and, friends of Friends. A second is on... Hearts and Hammers. I started with the easy ones where I knew the story without doing any research. And then the third one was uh, just what it was, what South Whidbey was like, you know. So you and I came to South Whidbey in your case, Bolinas, California in my case, in the same year, 1972. And we're both, you're probably younger than I am, but we're both... um, we were both part of that wave of counterculture-influenced people. I won't say hippies because it wasn't exclusively hippies. I called myself a back-to-the-lander. Right, a back-to-the-lander. We, we were. I was the assistant professor at Yale who taught the course on the counterculture, you know. And I was the one who lived right outside Yale in Milford, Connecticut, <laughs> oh, still in high school. <laughs> so uh, we, we came to... South Whitby to Langley in your case to uh, Bolinas in my case in 1972. And um, the way I tell this story, and then I want to hear the way you tell this story, um, South Whitby is to Seattle what West Marin is to San Francisco, and Langley is to South Whitby what Bolinas is uh, to West Marin. And the Whitby Institute is to uh, South Whitby, what Commonweal uh, is roughly to uh, West Marin. And so both of these were quite rural communities in 1972, where there was a, um, you know, as you said, first the Native Americans, the Indians were here, and then up here the communities were settled by Norwegian, largely Norwegian um, uh people in West Marin, they were settled by um, Portuguese, Spanish, um, Spanish land grant out of Mexico and Portuguese uh, immigrants and so forth. And then, as you set up here in the, in the 50s, there began to be uh, uh, vacation homes. That actually, I think, started a little earlier in Bolinas. Um, and then up here, if I recall, engineers from Boeing, mm-hmm. according to your account, moved in. And, and then following the Boeing engineers, the hippies moved in. And so we didn't get the Boeing engineers, um, <laughs> but we had a group of people who wanted to turn Bolinas into a Carmel and uh, create a, a dog racing track and a um, and a uh, um, uh, yeah, and a boating harbor, and so on and so forth. So you had the development wars. We but had we the had... development wars. But what happened was that when they tried to put in a sewage system that would support this massive development, 
the hippies who had moved out a few years before and there had been a big oil spill, and the hippies for the first time had gotten politically engaged in trying to save the birds from the oil spill, when they heard about this um, this uh, big bond issue that had passed to put this water system in, they rose up, recalled the entire water board, canceled the bond issue, and created a uh, ecologically sound um, uh, sewage system and took over the town because the control of Bolinas really rested with the water board since it was an unincorporated area and they could therefore control growth by not issuing water permits for additional growth, you know. Hmm. So that wasn't exactly the story here. No, we threw out the state land commissioner. You threw out the state land commissioner. Uh-huh. When they tried to uh, to, to clear-cut the old-growth forest up at, of course, Mr. Southwood B. State Park, right. people sat in front of the wow. bulldozers. Um, they protested. They got publicity in Seattle. It got stopped, and uh, the state land commissioner was tossed out. You're listening to a conversation with Lynn Williford and Michael Lerner. So, so... The same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You have the counterculture people moving in, then there comes a critical point where their values are at variance with the development people. There's a political battle. Uh, the counterculture people win. But then there's another thing that you describe, which is that you say that after the kind of fair weather hippies leave or get disgruntled or move on, that there's another group of people who settle in for the long term, who make common cause with the older residents and discover that they have shared concerns with making the community work. Well, and it actually, it actually was that those of us who were serious about living here, I mean, you... you when you move to an island, there are certain things that make it different than Bolinas. Bolinas right. is kind of remote in some ways, but we moved, we're people who moved to an island to live on five acres at the end of a quarter-mile dirt road. Right. So you wouldn't think we were communal people. Right. But the people who already lived here knew stuff we needed to know, and they were our neighbors. So we got the ones who stayed mostly got to know their neighbors. They got to know the neighbors. We learned how to live here. And our neighbors learned not to be quite so afraid of us, that in fact, if you didn't wear a bra, you were not necessarily a harlot. That if you had long hair, you were not necessarily a loafer. Um, Gosh, my husband Blake dug ditches for a machine operator here as one of his first jobs. And he and Jim have been canceling out each other's votes ever ever since. Um, So people who had had lived on the island for a while, full time, um, knew that they had to depend on each other. And we were, quote-unquote, hippies, and so we're inclined to do things communally anyway. So that, that by itself, was something that we could all agree on. Um, and, you know, we changed our ideas in some ways, too. It, it, after a while of knowing logging families, for instance, we realized that those logging big tracts of land would get logged occasionally. They would come back, but meanwhile, they were always going to be a green buffer for us. So we didn't necessarily protest every tree that came down. So it's a little give and take. Yes, the the, the difference, because I've lived in, in Bolinas for um, 43 years now, just if you've lived here for 43 years. And so the, the similarities I've talked about, but the differences are also profound and they fascinate me. Um, 
we have a wonderful culture in West Marin. I, I like many, many aspects of it. But when my wife Charlotte and I come up here, it's, it's an astonishing cultural experience. Uh, hmm. For one thing, the level of, I don't know, just friendliness and welcome is unbelievable. Secondly, the level of social support in the community with all these nonprofits and activities is something we really don't have with comparable power in West Marin. Really? Yeah. Um, the number, I mean, you, you know, we, we furnished our house and buy our clothes, as most people do, from the thrift store. From the thrift stores <laughs> here, you know. And so everybody shops the thrift stores, right? Yeah, we all wear each other's clothes. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I remember one woman who, who worked at uh, Habitat for Humanity. I was commenting on this. And she said, yeah, the only things I buy retail are my underwear and my toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that bad. But I have been in the lobby at the Clyde when someone says, oh, I really like your shirt. Did you get that a good cheer? And I've actually had to say, well, no, I actually bought this. <laughs> I bought a new item. <laughs> but other people around me will say, oh... I got, I, think I got these pants here, and oh, this hat came from there. And a certain amount of my clothing comes from the lost to found at the Clyde Theater. <laughs> because after six weeks, it either goes to Good Cheer or me. <laughs> well, Good Cheer, let's talk about Good Cheer for a moment. That's the, the used clothes store that supports, in Langley, that supports the nutrition program, right? It's, they have stores in both Langley and Clinton. Right. And they supports a wide variety of nutrition programs. Right. Um, I've been a Good Cheer volunteer for a number of years working in the food bank kitchen. So they support a food bank. They support um, a garden program that grows food for the food bank. They support, um, they have a person who comes to shut-ins houses mm -hmm. and finds out what they want and picks it out off the food bank and brings it in. And this is not the kind of food bank where you stand in line and get a box full of stuff, government issue stuff. In fact, they don't take the government issue stuff because the government wants everyone who gets it to fill out a lot of paperwork. And Good Cheer also does not believe you should have to grovel to get what you need. So Good Cheer only asks for your, your name, your age, the number in your household, your phone number, and whether you're in their, catch, their service area. And if you're not, they'll send you to the place in the next service area where you belong. But And, and everyone is comes in and takes a shopping cart and can shop. Have you been to the Good Cheer Food Bank? I haven't yet been to the food bank. You really should. Yeah. It's like a little grocery store, and it has everything from bread, fresh bread and canned goods and frozen meats and other foods. Uh, it has bulk items. It has immense number of produce. Um, it has little tiny bags of herbs and spices because, you know, if you're using less expensive food, you need flavor. And that actually is my usual job. I'm the spice girl at, uh, at Good Cheer. And it's all done. You get a certain number of points per month, and you spend those points however you want in the food bank. The most nutritious food is one point or zero points, and the least nutritious food is three or five points. So you are encouraged to eat well, but not forced. And how many people use the food bank? The usual, about 15%. 15%. It's not always the same 15%. You know, people. I've seen yeah. people in there who've lived quite nice middle-class middle, middle class lives, lose a job, end up at the food bank. When they get back to work, they'll volunteer. You know, my wife, Cheryl, told me last night as we were walking past Good Cheer, because the window display at Good Cheer was 
really elegant. It was like, you know, this beautiful clothes, mm-hmm. elegantly framed. And I said, you know, what an incredible window display. And she said something like, yeah, somebody, she either heard someone say or something like, thank you for creating a place for shopping for clothes that doesn't make us feel poor. Yeah, because half the people using it aren't poor. I know. <laughs> but I mean, so... and that, It's that, all about respect. Exactly. And that fits with the circularity that you talked about in your nonprofit work mm-hmm. that, that you also focus deeply instead when people were about to break into tears because you were able to pay their medical bills, you figured out a way to say to them, where do you volunteer? And they tell you, and then you say, well, then you're prepaid. Mm-hmm. So in all of these instances, it's about mutual support. Well, and also when I volunteer, I have no idea if the people I'm volunteering with are recipients or donors. Right. There's there's no way to to tell unless somebody tells you. But it's. I think one of the things that I like about South Whidbey is we don't actually have a caste system. Right. And I grew up in New England where there is somewhat of a caste system. Right. And um, here... You don't know who you're rubbing elbows with. Right. Um, and so you're more open to learning about different mm-hmm. from different people. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important point about caste system. I think it's kind of a gradient. Uh, you know, there are subtle forms of caste as well as explicit forms. Well, it, and it's not as if there aren't different social groups, because right. there sure are, and yeah. there definitely right. are different political groups. Right. Um, but, but it's not a caste system. It's not a caste yeah, system. Yeah, no. yeah. It's more fluid. And one thing we didn't bring up about the hippies and the change they made to the mm-hmm. South End is that um, they brought color. Mm-hmm. When I first came here, everything was flat, colored, no, no colors, mm-hmm. anything. And the hippies started decorating. Mm-hmm. And frankly, when we painted the outside of the Clyde teal blue with mauve trim, the design review board was on us in a minute, <laughs> calling it Mexican whorehouse blue. <laughs> no idea yet to go to the design review board for a paint job. You know, it just never occurred to me. Um, but somewhat after that, more and more buildings in Langley started to become colorful. Mm-hmm. And the hippies brought more of an artistic sense to the island. It had been in, Langley had an art colony in the 20s and 30s. Um, and Bolinas had quite an art colony. Yeah. yeah. But they didn't have the same effect as right. the hippies who came in and did did amazing drama productions mm-hmm. and, and painted things crazy colors and mm-hmm. wore crazy clothes. Mm-hmm. Now, South Whitby is extraordinarily white. Oh, yeah. Right. So you have a bunch of... Um, you have evangelicals, you have even survivalists, you have uh, conservative Republicans, you have liberals, you have... Communists. Radicals, progressives, <laughs> Anarchists, libertarians. So the progressives all favor diversity, but in fact they are living in an extraordinarily white community. Yeah, I'd be one of those progressives who favors diversity but lives in an extraordinarily white community. Yeah, yeah. But if you move out to the country because you want to get away from the mass commercial culture right. and you want to be quiet and in beauty... That's the choice you make sometimes. Right. Um, it would be lovely to see more people of all sorts of diversity, but mm-hmm. to get past the day when two weeks ago I, I, a woman came to the theater and she bought two tickets, and I, and I said, uh, 
you can go in and seat yourself if you want. Just tell me your husband's name and I'll let him in. She said, oh, you'll, you'll recognize him in a minute. He's the only Asian. Mm-hmm. I said, well, if another Asian comes in, you know, I'm going to send him in to you. <laughs> but, but it's sort of like mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. There was a period when we were here, there was a lot of racism and it wasn't, it, and it was overt. Mm-hmm. And in high school, uh, the quote-unquote redneck kids uh, mm-hmm. pretty much bullied a young black boy out of the school district. Mm-hmm. His family moved him to Port Townsend. Um, there was a period when a family that adopted kids from all around the world provided the only diversity at all here. And in fact, when some Hispanics started moving, families started moving here, everybody assumed their last name was Tornga because that was the name of the, kid, the people who adopted all the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, our, most of our diversity comes from grandparents raising mixed-race kids, um, adopted kids. Yeah, they're the, the, the moms who've adopted kids from Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how to change things. Right. No, that's just, that's just an observation about um, the nature of the community. I think that's why we used to travel with our son so much, was we wanted him to see to that see the whole diversity. world did not look like this. Right. I think another... Well, tell me this. I mean, you, you know Port Townsend, you know the surround a bit. Is the culture of South Whidbey significantly different in terms of the intensity of social support from, say, Port Townsend or other rural communities? In other words, is there a degree to which the combination of being on an island and the influx of counterculture integrating with specifically Scandinavian uh, background, which is a highly socially supportive culture, has created on South Whidbey a culture I know unique in my experience, but I haven't lived in Port Townsend. Port Townsend, is a, Port Townsend is a lot like South Whidbey. It's a lot like, so it isn't yeah. necessarily the island itself. And, you know, I don't necessarily think of us as this hotbed of northern culture, uh, Swedish or Norwegian culture. Okay. Um, Langley was founded by a German, actually. Right. Um, but still, it's Northern and, European. Yeah, it is yeah. Northern European. We, did, we didn't get the Southern Europeans right. that, that right. you got further south than San mm-hmm. Francisco, for mm-hmm. instance. So they're mutually supportive, in, especially in, the, in church congregations. Right, um, right. But you say Port Townsend is quite similar. I, th- I think so. Um, just I, mean, I have a broader sociological observation, which is that people, at least on the West Coast, if you start with L.I., that people on the West Coast tend to get kinder as you move north, with the <laughs> Canadians being the, you know, the fullest example of this, and they tend to get kinder as you move rural. I think it because as you move out from the big cities, you become less ambitious. Right. People are less ambitious. They're less about That's accumulating. True. They're less about striving. Mm-hmm. If they really wanted to strive and achieve, they would live in a city because that's where the opportunities right. are and the network connections. It's like you can go to Harvard and have the connections when you graduate, right. or you can go to a school that suits you and not mm-hmm. have that same degree of connections, mm-hmm. but you're going to, you know, you'll make good friends or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I've never had any big ambitions, so this is a perfect place for me. Mm-hmm. You've never had any big ambitions, and yet, uh, without any ambition whatsoever, you've started, uh, you know, quite a few nonprofits that have been effective. So, I guess that's my artistry. 
You have everybody. We're all creative some way. That's Rick and Grassi's term, a social artist, right? Yes. Yes. I I worked on that. It's actually Peggy's term, and I worked on that book with she and Charlie. And in fact, moving on for a moment from our focus on your nonprofit work, uh, you've done a lot of uh, work in writing and publishing and so forth with uh, Peggy Taylor, with Andy Weil. Um, Fritz and Vivian Hall. Fritz and Vivian Vicky Hall. Robin. Vicki Robbins. So you have a whole history. Tell us a little about the kind of the main stopping points on that dimension of your work. Well, actually, um, I didn't know I was a writer, though I majored in English and history, um, uh, until I was 40. And uh, I, was work- I had been putting together the newsletter for Citizens for Sensible Development. And... Uh, Ann Medlock called me, uh, the founder of the Giraffe Project, which is based here in Langley as well, and said, we just got a, a commission from Macmillan to write the sidebar art stories about people who make a difference for their third through eighth grade textbooks, and we want you to do it. I said, I've never done anything like that before. I don't know how to do that. She said, no, just, just do it. I said, well, wouldn't you like me to write some samples for you? No, just do it. So... That's how I started writing for professionally, and um, when I was done with those, I started working for the Draft Project, and that was really an inspiring job because I was writing about these wonderful people sticking their necks out for the common good. Are they still here? Oh yeah! In fact, Anne and John are in Singapore starting a giraffes in Singapore I right now. I haven't met them yet. I look forward to meeting them. You really should. Yeah. They have good stories. Yeah. Um, they were both in Vietnam in the seventies, mm. um, and so they're going back in Vietnam. They were in Singapore. Now they're in Vietnam, revisiting old places. So I started writing stories for them, and um, part-time as always, because I was working the movies, and I had a young son. Um, And Anne said, you know, the the editor of New Age Journal just moved here, and she's in the same building complex, which was built by Ross Chapin, who you've also interviewed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I think you should talk to her about getting some work with her. I said, I don't believe in a this single being Peggy Taylor. Yeah, I don't believe in a single New Age idea. Why would I go to New Age Journal? And Anne Medlock said, "Lynn, I really think you should talk to Peggy Taylor and work for New Age Journal." Oh, no. so I finally went down in the courtyard and asked Peggy Taylor if I could talk to her for a few minutes. And within twenty minutes, we like listed out a whole bunch of stories I was going to write. Mm-hmm. She needed someone at the time to help put together their annual source book, and I had a whole bunch of ideas and. I just loved just about every minute of working with that woman on mm-hmm. New Age Journal. I just felt like I was being introduced to a whole bunch of interesting and often wacky people. Mm-hmm. I remember walking into the office once to a conversation Peggy was having with a cat psychic. <laughs> that kind of kind of threw me for a while. Um, and that when um, the publisher of New Age Journal, David Thorne, took on doing a newsletter for Andrew Weil, who was one of my heroes, I, uh, I asked Peggy if I could write for the Andrew Weil's new newsletter. And she said, you're not a health expert. And I said, I've been writing health articles, among other kinds. She said, well, I have a health writer who's going to do it. And after their second issue, she called and said, okay, now you can come and write the Andrew Weil journal. And I did that for, for many years. Uh, the first couple of years, first year or so was writing it all by myself, and then it was, we added staff as it went along, and I worked on some special reports for them, and um, 
and met all the people who were training with Andy Weil in his first program down there in the University of Arizona, all those uh, integrative medicine docs, mm. who I was still in touch with some of them and wrote a book with one of them um, on uh, sort of the integrative Dr. Spock. Who was that? Russ, Russ Greenfield and oh, sure. Stuart Ditchek. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote the book. Russ was... Uh, Stuart lived in Brooklyn. Russ was living in Tucson and moving to Charlotte, and I lived out here. And we wrote a book together, meeting at bland hotels in the middle of America that all of us could get to. <laughs> so that's the, the that's writing. the writing, the writing trajectory. So, And now I just occasionally edit when someone here needs an right. editor. We had a little conversation about what kinds of movies play well at the Clyde Theater. We're going to go back to diversity here, I can yeah. tell. <laughs> well, no, but I'm really interested. What, what have you learned about the community from the movies that work at the Clyde Theater? And by the way, the Clyde Theater is, as people who live in Langley know, it's, a, it's an astonishing uh, community gathering place. Um, and uh, one just feels... And there are a lot of good movies that are shown there that are hard to find elsewhere, but... But what what are your kind of selection criteria for films that will nourish your Southwoodby audience in one way or another? Well, it has changed over the years. Yeah. Um, before I even became, I started the theater as a sweeper my my second year, my first year here. So I've been, though I have not been married to its owner for long, I have been associated with it for a long time. And Blake started by showing movies just on Friday and Saturday nights which was already doubling the number of nights the Clyde had been open. And he tried everything. He had a Wednesday night Shakespeare movie thing. He, uh, he showed foreign movies of all sorts. Of course, King of Hearts played here forever. I hated that movie. I was so tired of it. Um, we played movies that uh, the Apple War played only our theater and I think a theater in Seattle. Um, but over the years, people became less interested in foreign films which I find fascinating because a lot of people here travel quite a lot. A lot of people are very well-traveled, yet they don't seem to be interested in immersing themselves in, an, in a foreign culture anymore. Hmm. There was also... Uh, Why do you think that is? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's subtitles. I'd go to foreign films if you showed them. There'd be an audience of one. I know, but it's so hard to get people to come unless it's a British comedy. Okay. Or... Well, or French comedy, because we, we showed that uh, the in, in Invisibles, no. Uh, it's like the Elliot Ness thing. I won't, I won't remember. Intouchables. We okay. showed the Intouchables, which was twice, actually. Mm. Um, people are less interested in dramas. Um, many European films are more drama than mm-hmm. comedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are fewer European films and fewer European films being picked up by American distributors. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a, a, small, a smaller sample to begin with. Mm-hmm. We've shown Iranian films, nobody came. Japanese films, nobody came. That very famous Japanese animator that everybody mm-hmm. talks about, mm-hmm. nobody comes. Um, I haven't shown all of the Oscar nominees for the last couple of years because they were too grim for people here to come see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've noticed... And I don't know whether it has to do with the fact that in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of younger people here who are more willing to work to mm-hmm. work at a film. And, um, and now it's an older contingent because all those younger people got older and mm-hmm. we don't want to see a grim movie. 
You're listening to a conversation with Lynn Williford and Michael Lerner. But I wonder if Netflix has something to do with it. I wonder if people are more willing to see it on a small screen. Rent their foreign films and come down to gather around lighter stuff or something. I I don't I don't know because the the Clyde is a really social place. Right. Um, and they do come to some of them. Yeah. But I have to push. For instance. Um, mm. Not it's not a foreign film, but Hurt Locker. When we showed it the first mm-hmm. time, hardly anybody came, mm-hmm. and I thought these wars are going on all over the place in our yeah. name, yeah. and people should see this movie. Mm-hmm. So we actually brought it back and told them they had to come see it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they did. Mm-hmm. Blake promised to give them their money back if they didn't come see it. Wow. He did that again with uh, Particle Fever, the one about the Large Hadron Collider. So Particle Fever, which I saw uh, at the Clyde, was an astonishing film. Uh, and now you have a film on right now, the one about the guy who committed suicide after starting the The, the Imitation Game, the just imitation closed last game. night. Yeah. They all came to that. Right. British. Okay. okay. But Particle Fever was a harder sell. You had to push that a bit. Nobody had heard of it. You yeah. know, a lot of people right. read the reviews and stuff. Nobody had heard of it. The Large Hadron Collider. I mean, really? Yeah, right. Um, but our booker had seen it, and mm-hmm. he said, I said, really? He said, mm-hmm. you, you look at it. You look at it and tell me what you think. And I thought it was great. So let's go back to... Uh, oh, the other thing that doesn't play is movies yeah. with black people. Okay, yeah. And that one upsets me. Yeah, yeah. I keep playing them, and I keep playing them, and Blake finally said, okay, forget it. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go back to your current effort, which is, in many ways, I think, one of the most ambitious things you've tried to do. <laughs> at home on South Whidbey. South Whidbey at home. South Whidbey at home. So uh, there's a bit of a story here um, that I'll kind of bring into this, which is um, when Charl and I moved up here while staying based in Bolinas at Commonweal, uh, we found uh, Diana and Kelly Lindsay, who we also have done a conversation with, and as you know, Diana is uh, a five-year survival a survivor of stage four lung cancer, which she talks about in our conversation, so I can say it. And um, we had started at Commonweal a project called Healing Circles, which was an effort to reach out beyond the cancer help program, which we had done for 30 years, over 180 week-long retreats for cancer patients, to try to support high-quality support experiences for people with cancer and other forms of loss. And so we were developing that idea, and I got to know Diana and Kelly, and they got really enthusiastic about it. And so they started Healing Circles Langley, uh, and I got very engaged with their work, and they contributed a house that they had in Langley, very beautiful house, as its uh, center. And uh, then um, there was this book by Atul Gawande called uh, On Being Mortal, and I think that's the title. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd read it and circulated a little review of it, and they asked me to come to a conversation about it. And I said, maybe, but maybe we should use it just as a starting point for a broader conversation. And out of that... Uh, you suggested the possibility of uh, building on the Beacon Hill Village model of staying at home for elders. And Ross Chapin, the architect, suggested a project to um, uh, 
create residential capacity for older people in the community who could no longer stay at home, so they wouldn't need to go into assisted care or nursing facilities. And so we had this remarkable conversation with about 50 members of the community where uh, you uh, subsequently launched the uh, 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 at home in South South would be at home. South would be at home. A lot of the models use the right. town name with at home okay, after. South would be at home, and Ross launched the effort to explore building a residential thing. So that's the little preface. But you had thought of doing this years before. Oh yeah, I have. I had a little file. I have a file called "Great Ideas to Do Sometime." An article in ARP that I'd seen years before about the model. So the American Association of Retired People. Mm -hmm. So you seized this opportunity and the it was sort of thrust on me. I made the mistake of telling Diana Lindsay that this was something that interested me, and <laughs> by God, next thing I knew, I was on the I was on the docket for this meeting, and it moved really quickly from there. Um, uh, we had Ross and I each had our our next, our first real committee mm -hmm. meetings um, yesterday, and we each had thirty some odd people at them. Mm -hmm. Now, I have, I actually, did, I sent out an email with some information to the members of the people who showed up um, after the meeting, and I said, you know, please be patient with me because I have never done anything like this before. Everything I've started, I've either started by myself or I handpicked a small group of people to work with me. I have never sat with thirty people in a circle and tried to both keep the moving, meeting moving along because I don't like to spend a long time in meetings and make sure everybody gets heard and keep us on track. And so if I'm bossy, just tell me. Hopefully in a nice way, you said. Well, Greta Kammermeyer caught me on one thing and, yeah. and she very tactfully brought it up. And mm. in fact, Greta is as tact... Um, problematic as I am. <laughs> so the woman next to her said, good job, <laughs> good job, Greta. <laughs> that was very tactful. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a moment. So the, th this came out of Boston Beacon Hill, fairly affluent community, trying to figure out how elders could stay in their homes, right? Yeah, and it's a, it was a fairly small footprint at the time. Now they handle anybody in central Boston, I saw. They have a there are two YouTube videos up, one by ARP and one by Beacon Hill Village celebrating its 10th anniversary. So you can see what, what, what it is. But it's the whole idea of it's a membership organization and you pay an annual fee or you can, some of these do it by a monthly fee just deducted from your auto pay. Um, and you have access to sort of a concierge so um, of both paid services and volunteer services. So that I could call and say, I'm older, I can't replace my light bulbs, three of them are out, can somebody help? And a volunteer can come do that. Or you can say, oh my God, the, the water pipe burst, and they'll give you a plumber that they have vetted. And, um, and a lot of these, that you also become the first person on the list and or get a discount. So, so they can, I think a key point, which you and I discussed, is that they can negotiate lower rates for members with vendors. They can use the power, or the purchasing power of the collective, to negotiate lower propane rates or whatever it is. Right, and and that means that if you have this concierge service right. going, you can also attract younger families. Right, which gives you a pool of volunteers. Right. which can we would probably do a time bank 
right. so that if you volunteer, you either can save that in your own account or you can donate it to somebody right. who, who needs it in their account. So it's a, it's a in, instead of going to assisted living or a nursing home or whatever, you can stay in your community and be supported by um, having access to the services you need, either paid or volunteer, having access to, to social activities, having access to a group email list. So if I, for instance, get a new software program I don't understand, I could put out an email and say, hey, I'm, I, I need help understanding this. Anybody able to help me? And it just goes out to the people in your, in your Southwood Be at Home group, and someone would say, yeah, sure. When can I do it? Or I'm going to be in the hospital for three days. Can someone feed my cat? You know, Gawanda's book uh, on being mortal is really a fascinating cultural event. It went to the top of the bestseller list. We're old. (laughs) The reading public is old. (laughs) You have this, the beginning of the uh, baby boom generation. I'm just a few years ahead of it. uh, Suddenly realizing that they're... They're in their 60s, and they've made about zero preparation for being old, and they've saved very little money. You know, I sent a book proposal around about 10 years ago that a friend who was a physical therapist and I were going to uh, work on together. And the title, I, we just called it Hell No, I Won't Go, but it was going to have a better title. And it was all about the things you need to do to prepare your home, your finances, your health for retirement. And every place I send it to and every agent I send it to said, boomers will not buy anything about retirement. This is a total loser. Bo- I mean, it looked, it's a, they said it was a good proposal. You have good information. You have a nice writing style. But no one would buy this book. So people used to save for retirement. We have. We have always saved. Yeah. Um, but but I think it's what I think is interesting and it's behind a lot of these new ideas for aging in place or whatever is that we always... My generation always remakes stuff to fit us. That's right. You know, we remade childbirth. We remade child rearing. We remade. Um, we remade uh, education. Education. We've you know it's just it's just like we remade health. Yes, and now we're going we to remade remake culture. Then we're going to remake uh, aging, and, and now we're going to remake dying. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's uh, it's interesting, and I see that in in general in the United States. Seniors' organizations are going to have to change radically. Fundamentally. And, Fundamentally. And so we are trying to provide something. Our senior, citizens, our senior services here on Island County is quite good. Serves mostly, however, low income. Right. So if we can help middle income mm-hmm. and, and low income, too, because you can discount, you can offer discounts to mm-hmm. members whose, whose um, income mm-hmm. requires it, um, then, then we're providing a plus and not... Uh, trying to hurt something else, right? And and you said that the specific model, because how many, how how? I mean, this is spread across the country. This there's a hundred and forty either existing or in development right now. Right, but you said specifically that there was a particular kind of model of this that was suited to rural communities with several towns. Monadnock at home has uh, has either six or eight uh, websites vary um, towns covered. And I also just discovered yesterday, uh, thanks to one of the members of the committee, that uh, Florence, Oregon, has one design for uh, rural communities, too. For instance, they do. I wouldn't have thought of this, but their office uh, coordinates a monthly Costco buy. One truck goes to Costco, gets everybody's orders, and brings it back. 
mm-hmm. uh, because they all nobody can drive to the Costco. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I I think that it's gonna it's gonna be hard work making a group this large work at first, but that I think that we're going to make it happen. Mm-hmm. I'm really confident well, you, about that. You, you you have like three or four committees. What are the committees that people have signed up for? Well, the way we're working it is that committees come and go. Uh-huh. So right now the committees are um, what we have. Mm-hmm. We have an asset list we developed at our very first group meeting uh, of what Southwoodby has. But mm-hmm. these people are going to get the details about each of What do you offer? Who do you offer it to? How much does it cost? Um, what are the requirements? Mm-hmm. We have a what we need committee, and they're going to be uh, working with the gaps we already figured out and also talking to lots of people about what else, what are the other gaps? What do we need? What do people want? And then the third committee is what are other people doing? So they're calling, they're going to be calling various groups like that use the Beacon Village model and asking a, a series of questions. Um, and then I suspect then in a month we meet again and they'll be presenting their reports and then they might be done, some of them, um, and then we'll probably start some other work groups mm-hmm. to take the next stage. Mm-hmm. What, what, is on the, what is the top of the list of what is needed or wanted? I don't think we, it hasn't been prioritized. We have a list of, I mean, I could read it to you, but I'm in front of a microphone mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Um, transportation is always at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Help with household chores is always and yard chores is always home, at the top of the repair. list. But home repair is covered in some ways. Well, that's interesting. Covered in some ways by Hearts and Hammers, but it will be different. Well, and it's Hearts and Hammers has a a, a little piece called Heart that works all year round with yeah. a, with sort of temporary emergency repairs to hold it. houses until the workday. Yeah. But people have home repairs that don't that are too small for hearts mm-hmm. and hammers. Mm-hmm. You know, they just they got a broken step on the porch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a shutter has fallen down. You know, really small mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, garden help sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, help in emergencies. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to our generations as we really hit older old age, um, because. Um, it's one thing to hold, I don't want to call it, but the sense of promise and possibility that uh, we've held for, you know, 50 years, when you have some energy and when life, when your body's in one piece and stuff. It's quite different to hold that as you get really old or sick or have the losses accumulate. And, and no one wants to be a burden. No one in our generation wants to be a receiver or or to be a burden. So I'm thinking if we can make this sort of intergenerational, there are ways that you can be giving as well as receiving. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of what Southwood Be at Home does maybe is find ways you can do things that help other people. If Mm -hmm. you can't be a physical volunteer within the organization, maybe you can... Mentor, be a pretend grandmother for somebody mm-hmm. who, whose parent, whose own grandparents live far away, or maybe you can tell your life story. Um, maybe you can just be a friend. They, most of these have a group of people who volunteer to just be friends to just mm-hmm. check in once every week or two and visit. You can make the phone calls every day for people who want a daily check in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can find ways to make people have feel they have value no matter how old or how sick they are. 
Tell me what your experience is of the, let's simply use the term of art, the more or less millennial young people who have moved into Bolinas and I see moving into South Whidbey. Um, I love them. I love them too. <laughs> and, and my experience is, I say to them often when I, when I give little talks to them, I, I say to them that I honestly believe that they're the generation we've been waiting for because they have values that are very similar to the values that took us out onto the land and they're rediscovering the same things, but in a very practical way. They're less ideological, I think, than some of us were at that time. Well, they've grown up in a less ideological time. Remember, we grew up during the war and right. finding out that everything we thought we knew about government and right. society was wrong, and right. it was it was very upsetting time. They get to build on what we learned. We I taught them true. different values in yeah. some cases, yeah. and... And um, I, my only worry about the millennials, and my my son is right on the cusp between mm -hmm. Gen X and millennials because he was born in 1980, mm -hmm. um, is that there aren't enough of them. <laughs> well, there's that. We all, you know, we had fewer kids. There's that. But what I was thinking about in particular relationship to this fact that our generation is, is aging and will die is that the millennials... Um, for the most part, don't have any money. And they, they don't have any money, but on top of that, they're growing up in a period of time that unlike when we grew up, there was such a level of, I don't know what it was, promise about chaos. the future, promise, chaos, so on, that one could take these extraordinary risks with a sense that somehow it was going to work out. Well, I graduated from college thanks to my mom and scholarships with no debt. Right. And that made a huge difference right. in how much I could, you know, if I worked for a while and saved, then right. I had some free, freedom to do other things. And our kids don't have that necessarily. That's right. So, But Will, we, one of yeah. the purposes of Will is to help with that generational... That's the loan, lending program. Yes, the Whidbey yeah. Island Local Lending, yeah. is that we are older, mm. we maybe not have the same amount of energy, right. but we have the finances that we can invest locally to help the people who have the ideas and the energy get them off the ground. And and so I see that as a, as a benefit. And I do too. I, I think it's interesting you say that, you know, we're all going to be dying. Our generation does not believe they're going to die, apparently, because they don't make plans for it and they don't right. talk about it. Right. And <laughs> yeah, and many of us may not die for another 20 or 30 years, which is a whole, you know, I mean, I'm 70, so, you know, I'm hoping to keep working until I'm 90 at least. You know, yeah, so my mom's 88, still sailing right. a sailboat. Right, exactly. <laughs> But nonetheless, we're in a period where death happens and illness happens. Mm -hmm. and um, Disability happens. Right. So what I want to come back to is this aging uh, in place uh, concept and the relationship of the millennials to that. And I mentioned this in the meeting, which is I wonder if there are ways that uh, millennials coming into this system where you have elders with homes that have equity... Um, who may or may not have to leave those homes to their children. And you have millennials coming onto the land wanting to live with values like ours. And I wonder whether there's some equivalent of the reverse um, annuity mortgage situation that, and I know this is subtle and difficult, but that could be worked out so that um, younger people could make a... Uh, make a decision to um, 
really invest part of their lives in helping elders age and die with a, a real uh, promise Payoff. that somehow at the end of this road they would have a place to live and some equity. I don't know how to design that, but it interests me. Well, I do think that's interesting, too. Yeah. I don't think that we can... I don't want us to look on millennials as the people who are going to serve us in our no. old age. No. That's why I'm more interested in creating something where we serve each other as much as we can. Um, and as if we have enough younger members, I say that meaning like 40 and 50-year-olds, mm -hmm. then they become the next young old mm -hmm. who help each other. We just keep helping each other all the way down the line. Um, so anyway, any system you come up with that helps transfer stuff. I mean, a lot of a lot of kids are going to get money when their parents die, too. That's true. Um, we're probably worth more dead than alive, <laughs> except for the fact that we're helping our son build his house right now. <laughs> um, but we have to find ways that are respectful to both generations mm -hmm. to make those mm -hmm. transactions work, I think. So when you have um, this uh, South Whitby at Home project up and running, uh, you still have another project in mind called the School for Practical Things. Tell us about that. That's just castles in the air. That one's been in the file, the, the file of things to do someday for 20 years probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've watched other people come up with the idea, and not it's not happened. So, But it seems to me that when you live in a place as rich in people who know how to do various things as we do, mm -hmm. um, that... There has to be a really good way of sharing. There used to be an organization here called the South Whidbey Community School, founded by um, a crew of women, of course, um, back in the, I'd say the early 80s. And I was on the board for a number of years, and we had taught, taught cl classes taught by people who live here. And it was extraordinarily popular for a while, um, probably 10 years. And it, then it faded away. But I think there are a lot of people moving here, young people moving here, who um, could stand to, lose, to learn some practical things about living around here. And there are people who live here who have um, skills that we wouldn't have imagined knowing about at any age, any of us, that it would be fun to learn from. Mm -hmm. So I, can, I envisioned it as a place you would come for a week to learn how to build a pole frame house, or you'd come to for a weekend to learn how to do this or that, or... And it would employ people part-time. and But that's got a lot of moving parts, as does the South would be at home. And let's see how I do with that first. <laughs> and maybe I'll retire after that. What else are you thinking about these days? <laughs> what else is on your mind? You know, I live out here in this beautiful place among wonderful people who have interesting lives. And... Um, I always worry that I am not doing my share because there is so much that is totally screwed up in the world, mm -hmm. and I don't know how to fix those big pictures. And so those are the big things that I, I worry about. I worry about the fact that we're not a democracy anymore. I worry about the fact that the neighborhood policeman who was my friend is now wearing riot gear and driving a tank. I, and not, that is not true in Island County, by the way. I very much like the Island County Sheriff's Department. Um, I worry about those big picture things. I worry about the fact that a quarter of our kids are not, not being raised in safe places. I worry about the fact that though we 
say it's a post-racist society, we still are at the, a very segregated nation. Um, my mom keeps saying, if you care about this stuff, why don't you move into the ghetto and, and teach school? Well, because I want my life too. You know, I want to live, I can't live in a city. It's just, it's too noisy for me. But all those big things, I feel like I have a handle on the small things. It's the really big things that I can't do anything about that engage my mind. Mm. Lynn Williford, thank you for being with us at the new school. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a conversation with Lynn Williford and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.